You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey everybody, what's going on? I'm Trevor Noah. This is the Daily Social Distancing Show, and today is February 2nd, also known as day two of Black History Month. So let's party, people. Bust out some of that sweet black history music. Wade in the water. Wade in the water. Anyway, on tonight's show, another reason you might not want to get on a plane. What Reddit's learned from watching Wall Street, and Biden better have my money. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Before we get started, today is Groundhog Day, which leads me to ask, what the hell is Groundhog Day? People pull a rodent out of the ground and then ask the animal to predict the weather? Really? This is so unfair, because if Africans were doing shit like this, and you heard that we pulled animals out of the ground. Like, there are villages in Africa where people wear animal skin. And if I try to explain to them that Americans use groundhogs to predict the weather, they'd be like, but why not use satellite data? But let's move on from talking animals to emailing vegetables. It sounds too crazy to believe that scientists really have taught spinach to send emails. All right, here's how it works. Let's break it down. Engineers at MIT report that spinach roots can detect a compound found in explosives like landmines. When the roots detect the compound molecules in the roots release a signal. That signal is then read by an infrared camera, which sends an email alert to scientists. The purpose of the experiment is to detect explosives, but scientists believe it could be used to warn researchers of pollution. The experiment is part of a wider field of research that involves engineering electronic systems into plants. It is also called plant nanobionics. All right, I'm sorry, guys. This is insane. I mean, who emails anymore? Just DM me, spinach. Seriously, spinach, DM me. But you also know what this means. If spinach just got on email, it means that they're not as savvy about it as everyone else. So let me be the first to say, greetings, my dearest friend, Spinach. I have a million dollars in a trust that I sadly cannot access until the first day of March. If you are able to wire me $10,000, I will pay you back 15 times over. Please, Spinach, I need you. And now, we play the waiting game. (laughs) Well, congrats, man. Congratulations to the scientists who are working on this breakthrough. And now that they've taught spinach how to send an email, maybe they can move on to the next scientific frontier, teaching your mom how to use FaceTime. How do I turn the camera? Mom, I gotta go, just ask the spinach. Moving on to the coronavirus pandemic. It's the reason sweatpants are now a business expense. Yesterday, Western Australia went into total lockdown after discovering its first coronavirus case in 10 months. You see, Australia, is very different from the United States. In the US, water goes down the drain clockwise. And in Australia, they care about stopping coronavirus. Now, part of the reason for Australia's success is that Australians don't resist the government as much when they tell them that they should stay at home. And it's partly because these people know that COVID is a serious disease. It's also partly because 
It lets Australians stay away from all the other things in Australia that could kill them. Yeah, mate, it's bad enough that the scorpions and snakes are trying to kill me, but there's a koala that's trying to give me an STD. Now, eventually, of course, the world will reemerge from the pandemic. And I know everyone thinks that they're gonna jump right back into their old lives, you know, like going to bars or theaters or using the bottom half of your face to express emotion. But you might want to prepare for a period of adjustment because some things apparently take a little time to relearn. A new report says some pilots are getting rusty on the job due to the pandemic because, well, there are fewer planes to fly. Some pilots grounded for months by the pandemic have seen their skills and proficiency suffer. For instance, one pilot forgot to disengage the parking brake, damaging a tow truck that was trying to pull that plane from the gate. In another case, the pilot, well, forgot to turn on the anti-icing mechanism. Other reports include lining up the wrong runway for landing. To counter such rustiness, the FAA stops pilots from flying a commercial jet unless they have performed at least three takeoffs and three landings, either on a plane or in a simulator, in the previous 90 days. All right, I don't know about you, but this is kind of scary. Apparently you never forget how to ride a bike, but you forget how to fly a plane after like five days? Oh man, this is gonna change everything. Next time the plane hits turbulence, the pilot's gonna jump on the intercom like, uh, are there any hijackers on board? We need someone who knows how to fly the plane. I repeat, any hijackers, please make yourself known to the cabin crew. And listen, I get that pilots are human and everyone makes mistakes at their jobs, but there are certain jobs where there is way less room for error. You know, like as a mail carrier, you might say, oh, whoops, this package was supposed to go to apartment two and I accidentally sent it to apartment three. But as a pilot, it's more like, oh, whoopsie, these people were supposed to go to Miami and I accidentally sent them to heaven. And trust me now, this is not just gonna be pilots, people. Everyone is gonna be rusty after COVID. Projectionists are gonna be showing movies upside down. Bouncers are gonna be letting in groups of ugly dudes and telling beautiful women they got on the wrong shoes. Bullies are gonna give you their lunch money. Meanwhile, until the pandemic is actually over, Americans are going to need more help getting through it. And the big question of what that help will look like is dominating Washington DC right now. President Biden's pledge of bipartisanship facing its first test tonight. The president inviting 10 Republican senators to the Oval Office to pitch their COVID relief counteroffer. Their $600 billion proposal is a mere fraction of the president's $1.9 trillion package. The GOP plan leaves out a minimum wage boost the president includes and whittles down his $1,400 direct payments to Americans to $1,000. Still, when all was said and done, the White House did not appear to be conceding much ground, saying the president will not settle for a package that fails to meet the moment. This is a sign of this effort for, from President Biden to get bipartisanship here, but it also comes as Democrats on Capitol Hill are paving the way to move forward with only Democratic votes for this relief package. Look, man, I'm not gonna lie. I get why Democrats and Republicans are having trouble agreeing on this relief package. I mean, this is a difference of $1.3 trillion. How do you compromise when you're that far apart? It's like deciding what you wanna get for dinner and you want something nice, but your date wants to eat out of a gas station trash can. You can't compromise and eat out of a nice trash can. But I also do love how Republicans suddenly get stingy the second that a Democrat comes into office. Because don't forget, during the Trump years, they were handing out tax cuts with a strip of money gun. 
But now that Biden is president, suddenly they're trying to hand out COVID relief a penny at a time. One penny, two pennies. Am I making it rain yet? Three pennies, yes. More of a drizzle, I agree. Now, a lot of people are upset about the Democrats' plan to give people $1,400 because they say that the Democrats promised to give people $2,000. But the Democrats are arguing that everybody already got the first 600 a month ago. And I get the Democrats' point on this one, but at the same time, so many people are struggling right now, why not just give them 2,600 instead? I mean, you can find the money somewhere. Just take it from Space Force. Trump is gone. We don't have to pretend that that's a thing anymore. And finally, let's move on to the second most talked about Instagram video from last night after Courtside Karen. The post by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who gave a harrowing account of her personal experience during the Capitol attack. We're getting an eye-opening new look inside last month's siege on the U.S. Capitol. Ocasio-Cortez describing the impact of the riots, sharing details about what happened to her during the insurrection at the Capitol, telling her viewers she felt like she was going to die. All of a sudden, I hear boom, 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 boom on my door like this. Like I'm here and the bathroom door starts going like this, like the bathroom door is behind me or rather in front of me. And I'm like this, and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. You know, I just happened to, you know, be a spiritual person and be raised in that context. And I really just felt like, you know, if this is the plan for me, um, then people will be able to take it from here. Wow. You know, for a lot of us at home, the Capitol riots were basically an action movie on TV. I mean, it was scary and tense and terrifying, but at the end of the day, we were just watching it. But an action movie is very different when you are actually in the movie. I mean, AOC and other members of Congress literally thought that they were going to die. On a Wednesday afternoon, no less. I mean, nobody should die in the middle of the week. That means you went to work on Monday and Tuesday for nothing. And thank God that no members of Congress were actually hurt. But even just believing that you're going to die is a major trauma. And AOC handled it way better than I would have. I mean, she was like, if this is where my journey ends, so be it. Whew. If I thought I was about to die, I wouldn't be pondering my journey. I'd be trying to delete my browser history. And to everyone out there who's saying, oh, how scared could she really have been? How scared could she have been? Think about how terrified you get when someone knocks on the bathroom door when there isn't even a riot. Someone's in here! Oh God, now they're gonna know that I poop. So I'm glad that AOC shared the story because many Republicans in Congress would like to just pretend that this shit never happened that the lives of Congress members and their staff weren't in danger and that police officers guarding the Capitol weren't injured and killed. But if there's no accountability, then it becomes easier and easier for it to happen again. And the last thing we need from this action movie is a sequel. All right, when we come back, we'll look at why hedge funds are so mad about the GameStop uprising and Ibram X. Kendi is joining us on the show. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. By now, you've probably heard about the GameStop uprising, the biggest thing to happen with video games since Sonic got busted for doping. 
But if you haven't heard the news, what happened was that some Wall Street hedge funds bet a lot of money that the stock price of the video game store GameStop would fall. But a bunch of people on Reddit found out about those bets, so they started buying GameStop shares so that the price would go up and the hedge funds would lose a lot of money. And lose a lot of money they did in the billions of dollars. So, as you can imagine, Wall Street is pretty unhappy with those Reddit investors. A handful of industry leaders are calling for an investigation because of the angry mob that's formed against them. Last week wasn't a free market, it was a free-for-all market. No doubt about it, for my 25 years in the business, I've never seen this form of collusion on such a widespread fashion. This type of behavior is not the behavior that you want to be replicating. I think there is something obviously wrong, and it's the gamification of Wall Street. Talked to an analyst this morning, guys. He said this is dangerous. They they forget they're buying a stock in a piece of a company. It's not just some stim- symbol that you play hot potato with. Just because you throw the Hail Mary pass in your backyard and it's caught for the touchdown in the wind doesn't mean you're Tom Brady. What's going through my mind is is how irrelevant I feel and how every day I just don't want to get out of bed and how it's the least amount of fun I think I've ever had. Oh, man. These Wall Street guys are taking this so hard that their interviews are just turning into therapy sessions. I feel so irrelevant right now, and I'm not having any fun, and I I just remembered my parents never hung my paintings on the refrigerator. (laughs) But the truth is, what the Redditors did here is nothing new. In fact, the only thing that makes this so unique is that this is just the first time that the little guy has used the big guy's tactics against them. Because when it comes to manipulating the market and treating trades like a game, no one is better at it than Wall Street. I mean, they do this shit all the time. In fact, let's take a look at a few examples, starting with the scam one big bank pulled just a few years ago. The New York Times reporting over the weekend that Goldman Sachs is running a scheme to artificially inflate aluminum prices. An aluminum warehouse controlled by Goldman Sachs holds the equivalent of a quarter of the annual North American demand for the metal, but only offloads or distributes a required minimum of 3,000 tons a day. No more, no less, whatever the demand. Pushing prices of the metal higher even as demand has declined. Goldman profits from this practice two ways. First, from the extended rent paid to store the metal, and second, by the bets made on aluminum futures by its trading arm. The inflated aluminum pricing by Goldman and other financial players has cost American consumers $5 billion over the last three years. Yeah, that's right. Basically, Goldman Sachs manipulated the supply of aluminum by only letting out a little bit at a time. You know, the same way Daniel Day-Lewis limits the supply of movies he's in. I mean, the dude's only been in six movies over the past 20 years. The Rock made that many movies yesterday. Get to work, Danny! By the way, for the rest of the segment, I'm gonna be pronouncing it aluminum, even though the correct pronunciation is aluminium. But we had a vote, and all the people I work with are American, and so they won. And I didn't wanna accept the election result, but then I was like, no, we don't wanna do that again. And I'm sorry, guys, but aluminum should never be hoarded. It needs to be used the way God intended to make condoms for robots, or for Marjorie Taylor Greene to wear as a hat. And believe it or not, Goldman Sachs got away with this scheme for years until people caught onto it. So I guess you could say that their aluminum plan was foiled. Wow! 
Now, as crazy as this is, it's actually a common tactic with Wall Street. You take over a market and then manipulate its supply to drive up the price. Like how JP Morgan used its control over electricity to fleece California. JP Morgan Chase accused of manipulating energy prices and so driving up the electric bills of millions of Americans. At night, when energy prices are very low, essentially, they would bid them up so that in the morning, the companies would go to buy energy and find the prices artificially high. It takes a few hours to get a power plant going. So they would have to buy the energy in the morning when it was very, very expensive. In one case, JP Morgan duped California utilities into paying $999 per megawatt hour when the going rate was only $12. Yo, this shit is crazy. It's like these guys were sitting around a table like, I'm tired of just abusing our power metaphorically. Let's do it for real. Basically, because of JP Morgan, the cost of electricity went up from $12 per megawatt to almost $1,000 per megawatt. Even Amish people were like, yo, I don't even know what electricity is, but that shit is messed up, B. I hope the Amish community doesn't come after me on Twitter for that one. I mean, at that price, I would actually be less upset if you jumped me and robbed me. At least then it feels like you had to work for it. And the truth is, people, this isn't something hedge fund people are ashamed of. In fact, some of them even brag about it on the TV. Jim Cramer once made a fortune running a successful hedge fund. He went on to host his own TV show, Mad Money, that offers stock tips to investors. But as Cramer has found out lately, a lot of Americans are mad at him. This video, made in 2006, has suddenly gone viral. Cramer explains to his own financial website, thestreet.com, how he could influence stock prices up and down as the manager of a massive hedge fund. You know, a lot of times when I was short, at my hedge fund and I was positioned short, meaning I needed it down, uh, I would uh, create a, um, a level of activity beforehand that could drive the futures. It doesn't take much money, but it's a fun game and it's a lucrative game. And I would encourage anyone who's in the hedge fund game to do it because it's legal. Right. And it, uh, it is a very quick way to make money and very satisfying. Okay. Um, well, by the way, no one else in the world would ever admit that, but I could care. These people, got no shame, no shame, zero, not a zilch. He's just out here boasting about his evil plans. I mean, the only people who do that are hedge fund guys and bond villains. I mean, listen to him, listen to him talk about it. It's legal and it's very satisfying. Just as a general rule, whenever you have to remind someone that something is legal, eh, it's probably shady. You know, no one's ever like, hey, Trevor, you wanna go to the Cheesecake Factory? It's legal. Uh, but when it comes to hurting people in order to make a buck, nothing compares to the Great Recession of 2008, which was caused by, guess who? Wall Street manipulating the markets. During the hot housing market, banks took millions of home mortgages, many held by people who could not afford them, and bundled them into packages as mortgage securities. J.P. Morgan today admitted that it sold those packages to investors even though its executives knew that many of the mortgages were highly suspect. When the market collapsed, those packages became mostly worthless. Goldman sold investors subprime mortgage packages, but then made its own bet those same investments would lose value without telling investors. Goldman employees themselves use profanity to disparage the deals. Boy, that Timberwolf was one deal. And when asked if any of the executives at least felt partly responsible for the financial collapse. There's things that we wish we could have done better in hindsight. Or even regret. Regret to me means something that you feel 
like you did wrong. And, and I don't have that. When you hear your own employees or read about those in the emails, do you feel anything? I, th I think that's very unfortunate to have on email. Are you embarrassed? <laughs> and, and very unfortunate. I don't. I don't on again, emails, please, please don't take that. How about way. feeling that way? I think it's very unfortunate for anyone to have said that. God damn! Even the crowd. Do you see them? Even the crowd in the chamber was like, oh. You know how bad you have to screw things up to turn a Senate hearing into a Jerry Springer taping? But this is how you know how psychotic these guys are. Not only did they tank the economy, but they talk about emotions like they're serial killers. Do you regret? hurting these people. Regret is a thing that one feels when one has done something wrong. <laughs> I mean, how can you expect these guys to change their behavior when they can't even express their remorse? The closest Wall Street comes to reflecting is doing coke off of a mirror. So after all the damage Wall Street has done to people's lives, please miss me with all of this whining about how unfair it is for Reddit to boost GameStop. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all these Reddit guys are heroes, but I will say it has been fun watching how some of the people who got rich off of GameStop have been spending their money. While GameStop has minted plenty of millionaires, many retail investors are using their more modest profits to pay bills. One Reddit user even posting that he paid off his student loan debt thanks to the money he's made off of GameStop the last few days. 10-year-old Jaden Carr. Two years ago, his mom bought him 10 shares of GameStop as a Kwanzaa gift. Back then, they were $6 each. Now, he sold them for more than $3,000. What are you gonna do with the money that you've made on GameStop? I have already saved 2200 of it, and the rest of the 1000 is going to go to invest in work companies. Hunter Khan cashed in on the GameStop phenomenon last week, but didn't just cash in for himself. He used some of the money he made to donate six Nintendo Switches and games to the Children's Hospital in Minnesota. One day trader who cashed in on the craze walked into a GameStop store this week and started handing out $100 bills to employees. After the Robinhood app halted trading on GameStop, one investor chartered a plane to fly a banner over the company's headquarters saying, Suck my nuts, Robinhood. Ooh, that's a gangster move right there. It's like Twitter, but in the sky. Now, you could say it's childish to spend money you took from Wall Street to dunk on Wall Street, and that may be, but in the words of Jim Cramer, it's legal and very satisfying. All right, when we come back, Ibram X. Kendi will talk about African-American history that you might have missed. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Professor Ibram X. Kendi. He's a historian who you might know from his award-winning book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. We talked about his new anthology of African-American history and so much more. Professor Kendi, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. It's great to be back on the show. Um, yeah, it's good to be back for you, but technically, the last time I saw you was in the studio. Yeah. A lot has changed since then. I mean, not just the fact that people are at home, but the fact that America has seen so many changes, and yet, some may argue, America has seen so much more of the same. Your book rose to the New York Times bestsellers list um, during the protests. And what, what many people gravitated to in your work was how you laid steps out for people to engage in anti-racism. Tell me a little bit more about that and firstly, why you felt it was necessary to lay out the steps and the tools that people could use and why it's so important to be anti-racist as opposed to just not being racist. 
when racial inequity and injustice is normal, if you do nothing, what's going to happen to that normality? It's, it's going to persist. And, and so I, I really wanted to encourage people to actively challenge racism, but also to, to realize there's a direct opposite to notions of racial hierarchy. And that's notions of racial equality, which are anti-racist ideas. There, there's a direct opposite to policies that lead to or maintain racial inequity. And that's anti-racist policy. So, so we can be creating a different type of America with different types of policies and different type of ideas. A lot of people love your work because you delve into the past and you tie it to the present. This project is really special because you are editing a book about the history of being African-American. And yet, instead of just looking at it through the lens of one person, one author, one storyteller, you've gone with multiple stories. Just everyone from every walk of life who fought for black freedom in America, from the slave trade all the way through to the current day. Tell me why you thought you could retell a story that has been told so many times in a different way. Why did you think, I'll jump on this project to edit this book? Well, I mean, with the 400th anniversary or birthday of, of, of Black America approaching, I think we wanted to figure out a new way to tell Black, Black America's history. We wanted a new way to commemorate this moment. And one of the oldest racist ideas is this idea that we're a monolith, um, that, that there is not incredible diversity within Black America. And, and also, African-American history has traditionally been written by a man, oftentimes a Black man. And so I think with those two things, we really wanted to bring together a community to write the history of a community, an extremely diverse community. And I think that's one of the things we're most proud about in terms of this book, just the diversity of Blackness within the book and even the ordinary and extraordinary characters we, 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 we share. When you look at those stories, do you ever wonder what your dream is for the end goal? Sometimes I'll be talking to friends who will say, what is like your definition of white privilege? And I say, just for me personally, I go, for me, white privilege is you have the opportunity to fail on your behalf and succeed on your behalf and your behalf alone. You know, if a white man launches a rocket to the moon, that's what he did. You know, if a white man shoots up a school, that's what he did. If a black person launches a rocket to the moon, then I mean, these niggas be launching rockets. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I, I, I wonder what your idea is as a professor who studies race. What are, you, what are you hoping that we get to? What place do you hope to see us achieve? Well, it's, 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 it's ironic you, you speak about that individuality because I think in the introduction to 400 Souls, I wrote about how we're not able as black people to be individuals, right? Um, and, and so certainly for me, that would be an end goal. But, but I also think, you know, justice, um, you know, equal justice, you know, for all peoples, you know, just something as simple as when I see a member of public safety or a police officer or whatever we would have in the future, I don't feel scared. Right. <laughs> you know, when I haven't done anything wrong, I'm not going to, to, to certainly feel scared. Or, or something like I walk into a, a place to, to apply for a job and I don't have to look twice at what I'm wearing, how I'm going to speak, because that's not really going to matter, you know, especially if, um, you know, I have the qualifications. I've always wondered, 
uh, you know, when I traveled the world, I was, you know, I'd, I'd be lucky enough, my comedy would take me to different countries. I was always intrigued by how black people specifically would be treated differently when they were not the black of that country. You know, like black Americans would come to South Africa and oftentimes, whether it was shopkeepers or, you know, just people in the street, they'd be like, oh, you, you're a black American. You're very, very different. And sometimes even Africans from other African countries would come and be treated differently. The same I would notice in America. Is, is there something in the story of race that is also tied to the history of how the country has treated the people of that race in the country? I, I think so. I, I think race and racism is simultaneously global and national. In other words, you can see similar trends across the world, but each of those trends, each of those policies, and each of those racial constructions are distinct to the nation. But what's also consistent is pretty much every nation in the world argues that they're not racist <laughs> towards black people. <laughs> yeah, you see that across the board. Um whether it's, you know, the South African apartheid government or, or through to the U.S., no matter who it is, people go like, no, 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 we're not racist. We just do these racist things to these people. There's, there's a new administration in the White House. Many people feel like this is a new opportunity for America. Joe Biden has said on multiple occasions that racism is going to be at the forefront of his agenda, which has drawn him a lot of criticism. What would you hope that he would do, actually do, that could move America forward in achieving that racial equality? Well, one thing he's doing with the coronavirus is he's, he continues to say that he's going to put science before politics. And so as it relates to racial inequity and injustice, if he was to put silence, science before politics, if he was to essentially look at what scholars are saying, how we can eliminate eliminate inequities and injustices, how we can reduce or eliminate police, not necessarily be as concerned about white swing voters or even Republican mm -hmm. voters, then I think he would be able to make some serious advances in rooting out racism. But the, the fact of the matter is, is the irony is the very folks who support racist policies that drive us apart through inequities, who support racist policies that maintain racial injustice that causes people to be killed by police, which then leads to mass demonstrations, are the very people trying to claim we're divisive, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the fundamental, you know, fallacy. We want to, equality brings people together last time. Right. Well, I, I will say this, um, it will always be a journey. Uh, it'll always be a challenging one. But having somebody like you and people like you who are writing some of the most amazing works to uh, help us figure it all out, uh, I think helps every single day. So thank you so much for joining us on the show again. Thank you for editing this amazing piece of work and I hope to see you again. Thank you so much, Trevor. 400 Souls, edited by Professor Candy and Keisha Blaine, is available right now. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, this Black History Month, please consider supporting Dreaming Out Loud. They're an organization that's increasing access to healthy food in marginalized communities and building a sustainable food system that employs and works for people of all backgrounds. If you'd like to support their work, then please check out the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and if the pilot on your flight forgets how to fly, just remember, the sky is up and the ground is down. 
The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.